I'm Abby Strauss, and welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. Dementia is a debilitating neurological disorder, and as our society begins to have more and more people reaching 80 years of age or older, so too is the incidence of dementia increasing. But sometimes it's even seen in younger ages. Dr. Carl Sadowski is a neurologist in Palm Beach County who has treated many people with Alzheimer's and has also been involved probably in countless number of studies in the development of new treatments for Alzheimer's and other types of dementia. Dr. Sadowski, thank you very much for being with us. It's truly my pleasure. Let me begin with something that is a little bit perhaps more lighthearted, but I've heard people say to me that there are senior moments. And the question is, when does a senior moment rise to the level of a medical problem that they would come to see you? Well, that's actually an interesting and sometimes tough question. Many people have these events where, oops, I can't think of their name or the word. And there are many different forms of memory, that kind of memory so-called episodic memory is very easily lost as we get older, but doesn't reach the point of significance. It really becomes significant when the memory loss starts causing functional issues. So when your memory loss or your senior moments interfere with your function, i.e. you have trouble doing the checkbook, you're having trouble driving the car, reaching the point where it's actually impacting your life, that's when we are more concerned about it. Many, many people have these senior moments and they're perfectly benign. A senior moment can be quite benign if it starts to get more frequent and impairs activities of daily living and function, then we are much more concerned about it. Dementia is a general term that means memory loss that impairs function and there is a differential diagnosis, i.e. there are many different causes of dementia. With Alzheimer's disease representing the most common cause probably 60 to 70 percent of the causes of dementia are Alzheimer's disease. Should people begin the workup with a neurologist, with an internist, with a psychiatrist? Where would be the, the appropriate place to start? I think any or all. I think typically the primary care doctor or internist uh, starts the, the process. I think one of the problems today is that many primary care doctors miss the diagnosis of dementia uh, because it's often subtle early on and and the patients maintain very nice social graces so they greet the doctor and until you actually test the patient much like we screen for high blood pressure if you don't screen for memory loss it's very easy easy to miss it is the testing a like a neuro neuropsychological testing Well, I think down the road that can be part of the workup, but I think typically for the primary care doctor, we're really pushing the concept of what we call a mini-cog and an ADA. These are very simple tests, and it's we test what we call episodic, the ability to remember episodes, short-term memory. And so the way to test it is to give the patient a few words like ball, flag, tree, and a few minutes later say, what were those three words I gave you? And if the patient forgets all three, that's often a um, sign of trouble. Uh, we also use what's called an AD8, it's a, something designed by Dr. Jim Galvin. And it's a brief eight-question questionnaire. Um, if two positive responses show up on that test, it often implies there's a significant memory loss that might mean an early dementia. So I think... If we don't screen for dementia, just like if we don't screen for hypertension, we're going to miss a lot of the 
patients who have an underlying memory disorder, and the time to deal with it is early on. We don't want to wait until the patients are severe. One of the problems, of course, nowadays that our medications being as good as they are can also in combination cause side effects that appear to be a dementia. Where do we start with this? Very common. Dr. Martinez and I, one of my partners, put together a list of iatrogenic memory loss with a list of about three or 400 drugs that can cause it. So I'm very careful when I use drugs and I think patients and families need to understand why they're taking a drug. Is the drug working? The drug du jour that causes trouble a lot these days is anything that says PM in it. So Tylenol PM being the classic, that means Tylenol and the PM is Benadryl, and that's a very common cause of memory loss. So there are a lot of drugs out there that can cause memory loss. The benzodiazepines, drugs like Valium, et cetera, can cause memory loss. So one of the things we're very careful for about is making sure we know what drugs, including over-the-counter drugs, that patients are taking and, and getting them off those drugs to see if that's the actual culprit uh, that's causing the memory loss. Sometimes just for folks who are listening, we call it a pseudodementia. Yeah, I think um, pseudodementia really implies that the dementia is due to more of a psychiatric issue, often depression. Um, the thing that I'm talking about now is more a delirium, i.e. a drug that's causing some memory loss because there's poor concentration, they can't register information well. We do see a lot, a decent amount of pseudodementia, and, and you folks as psychiatrists see this probably more than we do as neurologists, in which patients have a depression. Depression tends to be a frontal lobe disease, leads to concentration difficulties. With poor concentration, patients then can't remember things. But it's interesting, the, the depression memory loss and the Alzheimer's memory loss are anatomically different. One comes from the front of the brain, one comes from the temporal parietal lobe, and we can often sort them out as we have more and more experience with this using our tests. Even imaging, PET scans, MRIs, and the like? Actually, uh, neuropsychological testing. So, for example, patients with frontal lobe issues, whether it be depression or frontal lobe dementia, have trouble with concentration. So, serial sevens, numbers forward and backward, those are the kind of things they have trouble with. Patients with Alzheimer's disease tend to have what we call episodic memory loss, so trouble remembering three words five minutes after we give them. So a little bit different, but uh, an experienced clinician can often separate that. A lot of times people will come to me and tell me that they're family members who are suffering from dementia, that the dementia is not the same every day. The memory loss doesn't seem to be the same every day, good days and bad days. How, how common is that? Very common. There's a lot of uh, lability, ups and downs. Uh, the typical thing, though, is the short-term memory loss is, is pretty consistently a problem. So we teasingly say, not to make light of it, but that they can't remember what they had for breakfast, but they can remember the name of their second grade teacher. Okay. So it's the short-term memory that's a problem, and that's pretty consistent. That's why they're repeating questions. Whose office am I going to? What are we doing today? Yet they remember full, fully well that they graduated from college and what year and who their teachers were. It's the new memories that are a problem. How rapidly, if there is a ability to predict it. How, how rapidly does a dementia progress? 
Well, if we're talking about the typical Alzheimer's dementia on our standard test, like the mini mental, which is a, uh, a test that many clinicians use, the patients tend to go downhill without treatment about three points a year. So that if a scale like the mini mental, which goes from zero to 30, if you're seeing them in the mini mentals 24, a year later it's 21, and then 18. And what we're trying to do with our treatment, uh, it would be nice if we could cure the disease. That's not what's happening, but we can slow it down a little. We can often see that on the mini mental, but even better, you can see it when you talk to the families about their gestalt about what's going on. So a lot of it, again, as you said, is the ability to function, is the ability to get up and remember where, where one put things, cooking and so on. Exactly. And early on, it's always handling the finances and driving the car. As time goes on with more functional loss, things like dressing, cooking, cleaning, um, more and more difficulties. There are on the market now four different medicines for memory loss, and as we discuss any of these medicines, of course, it's important to emphasize that any medication which is used by an individual has to be done in, in direct conference and in deciding with their own doctors. So we're not recommending anything uh, other than perhaps the talk to the doctor. But what do these medications do? You know, Razadine, Aricept, Namenda, Exelon... How helpful are they? What should families expect from them? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, and one of the things that I always do with families is literally talk about expectations. I often, again, teasingly say that treating dementia is like ordering Chinese food in the old days. I grew up in New York. Anyone who knows me knows that I love Chinese food. <laughs> and it's uh, literally one from column A and one from column B. And column A is Aricept Exelon and Razadine, and column B is Namenda. And in column A, the three cholinesterase inhibitors, Aricept-Exelon and Razadine, have pretty much the same efficacy, and it's really the side effect profile that allows me to choose between one or the other. I tend to like Exelon patch now. We spent a lot of time working on it because Exelon doesn't interact with other drugs, which I think is important. It's not metabolized through the liver. Aricept is the old standard bear. It's been around a long time. So those are the two I tend to use. Razodine, the big advantage is it's now generic, so it's cheaper. But I think clearly it has more in the way of side effects than Aricept or Exelon, so it tends to be third on my list of treatment. The three drugs work by raising the level of acetylcholine, which is the memory chemical in the brain. The other class of drugs, column B in my Chinese food paradigm, is Namenda. The word Namenda actually comes from NMDA antagonist, so it works by blocking the uh, NMDA receptor and blocking glutamate, perhaps more than people want to know, but it's another class of drugs. It's only been approved for moderate to severe disease, so I often see it being used earlier than I think typically it should be. Its efficacy is uh, about a half to a third of the cholinesterase inhibitors, just looking at the clinical trials and comparing the results on the different tests that we use. So it's a nice addition, but not a dramatic addition. And so I think although we have two classes of drugs, we clearly need better drugs because these drugs slow down the progression, but they don't stop or cure the disease. Which brings up an interesting point because you've just spoken about the NMDA receptor and glutamate and you know anticholinergic uh, activity, 
But people wonder why there's so much emphasis on the beta amyloid notion and even other things, the vaccines. It seems like we perhaps don't really know what causes the deterioration. Well, uh, again, when we're looking at the cholinesterase inhibitors and the mender, we're really looking downstream. If we look upstream more at the, the initial cause of the disease, I think there's pretty much universal or almost universal acceptance that this is a disease of amyloid metabolism. And I often make the analogy to cholesterol so that when we treat heart disease, we're trying to lower cholesterol, which is clogging the arteries and causing heart attack and stroke. In Alzheimer's disease, there's uh, an oversupply of amyloid. It's destroying the neurons, the cells in the brain. And then to tie it together with the cholinesterase theory, those neurons that are being destroyed by amyloid are the neurons that are making acetylcholine. So we're treating downstream. We'd like to treat more at the source of the problem by preventing amyloid from doing its dastardly deeds, much like we're trying to prevent cholesterol from destroying the coronary arteries. And there's tremendous progress on that score in terms of new and, and potentially very exciting treatments. How long do you think it'll be before we have something that's significantly different? I, I think there are two really exciting potential breakthroughs uh, in which we're perhaps two years, three years. One is the ability to image amyloid in the brain. So to go back to our cholesterol analogy, once we were able to measure cholesterol, it was a very exciting time because then we knew that we needed to find drugs that could lower cholesterol. We are working on a technique. We're working on it with Abbott Pharmaceutical out of Philadelphia. We're actually in the final phases of the studies. The FDA, I think, is getting close, i.e. the next couple of years, to approving this technique. And it's really very simple. It's, it's an F18 compound, just like we do uh, a typical PET scan today, which is very easy to do. We have a compound that we inject intravenously. It binds to amyloid in the brain, and we can then measure the amyloid burden in the brain. We've done many, many of these scans. It looks very promising. We're actually doing a study now in which we're looking at patients near the end of life and comparing that to the amount of amyloid at post-mortem. These patients are actually, and families are allowing us to do brain donations so we can figure out exactly what we're looking at on the scan. This was a study demanded by the FDA and I think is going to be perhaps the final step before the drug is or the ligand which we're using is approved. So if we know how much amyloid a patient has uh, in the brain, uh, the next step would be how do we reduce that. So if we know you have a lot of cholesterol, the time to start treating it is before you have your heart attack or stroke. The time to treat the amyloid burden in the brain is before you develop Alzheimer's disease. And which takes me to another topic. A lot of times people come to me and they're hesitant about going on the drugs and they try all sorts and all manner of over-the-counter things, vitamins, supplements, and everything else. It seems to me sometimes that it actually is just wasting time until we get to the more serious treatments, but it's so popular. I'd just like to hear your opinions on it. Yeah, I mean, my patients come in the office with a little brown bag full of what my grandmother would have called chazerai and uh, or junk <laughs> and you know they're on all sorts of things and we've studied a lot of these drugs for example ginkgo was just studied by steve dukoski looking at a huge number of patients thousands totally worthless uh, so people are spending a lot of time and money and these drugs have side effects 
We, for years, were using vitamin E. We thought that might be useful. After many studies, the consensus is that doesn't work. So I think a lot of people are using over-the-counter preps that don't really work. In fact, I was looking at the newspaper, the Palm Beach Post, the other morning, and there's this huge ad in the paper about some over-the-counter uh, preparation. And you know, we're not against progress. We want our patients to do better. But I think you need to be rigorous and scientific about this. I think we really need to, above all, do no harm and study these drugs to see if they work. It's been my experience. We've studied a lot of these drugs that when you put them through a rigorous, double-blind, controlled scientific test, they fail. Very interesting, and I think some very good take-home words for people who are listening. Dr. Carl Sadowski is a neurologist in Palm Beach County. As you have heard, he is quite knowledgeable about the issues related to the research and treatment of dementia, and we thank you so very much for being with us today, sir. Thank you for the opportunity.